politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Joe Biden raids the Treasury again. Alabama's effort to protect in vitro embryos and the GOP's unity, or lack thereof. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today, but in his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook, MBD Michael Brendan Doherty, and Madeline Maddie Kearns. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Donors Trust and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More on them later on. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So this week, Joe Biden announced another round of what he calls student loan forgiveness, what his Republican critics rightly denounce as not forgiveness, but transference of that debt onto the backs of taxpayers. All of $1.2 billion in this round, bringing the grand total of so-called student loan forgiveness to $138 billion. The president has tried to tailor these attempts uh, in his efforts to raid the Treasury in support of his constituents with degrees to comport with the Supreme Court decision in Biden v. Nebraska. But Biden doesn't want you to know that. He said, quote, the Supreme Court blocked it, but that didn't stop me. Charlie. He wants you to think he's being lawless. Why should we not oblige him? Well, it depends what you mean. We should oblige him in the sense that we should point out that he wants us to believe that he's defying the law, which is bad in and of itself. And also that even if these orders are legal, and there's some problems with the arguments in their favor, although I wonder whether a court would strike them down. This is not how the American system is supposed to work. The latest round is being executed under what the Biden administration has called the SAVE plan, S-A-V-E. This is not a straightforward application of the statute that is being invoked in its defense. This is an application of the administrative changes that the Biden White House has made, and an early one at that. These changes are supposed to go into effect in July of this year. Uh, they've already been used and touted. Those changes are quite dramatic. They lower uh, the time that one has to wait before one can get so-called relief they change the income thresholds. They change the way that $0 payments are regarded. This is quite a complicated administrative law question, and I've read arguments on both sides as to their legality. But we should not buy the argument that's being made in some quarters that unlike what Biden was doing with his plan that was struck down by the Supreme Court, this is just American law. It's American law as filtered through substantial changes that the Biden administration has made to it. That is controversial. So what he is doing here is changing or altering the law, whether legally or not, in order to spend hundreds of billions of dollars. And even if you think that this is technically legal, I'm skeptical, but I'm open to the argument, this isn't how America is supposed to work. Once again, we are looking at a president who is making real changes to the law and extracting enormous amounts of taxpayers' money from the Treasury in order to achieve an agenda item that he can't get through Congress. The total amount that this is supposed to cost over 10 years is $475 billion. That is a half-trillion-dollar purchase. That's net. 
In other words, because Joe Biden has made these changes, the United States is going to spend half a trillion dollars more than it would have had the law that Congress passed been interpreted in the way that it was before Joe Biden became president. So before we get on to the policy of this, there is a big problem here in my estimation in that Biden has changed the way the law is being executed at enormous cost because Congress won't do it. And that's just not how the American system is set up. So before we move on, Charlie, you wrote in your piece, Biden's student loan lawlessness must not go unanswered. Everybody should go read it. Um, you uh, insist on that Republicans, in a very passionate piece, which everybody should go read, that Republicans must seek a remedy for this, for the taxpayers who've been fleeced, um, if Republicans don't push back hard for restitution in the form of changes to tax law, for example, to, quote, um, give back the money to the people who were given a free ride, Republicans would be guilty of uh, unforgivable abdication. Yeah. Look, the argument that is being made by Joe Biden here is wholly dishonest. Forget the law for a moment. Politically, it is dishonest. He makes it seem as if he is engaged in reform. But he's not. He's transferring money from people who did not take out loans to pay for a college education that they received and benefited from, and giving it to the people who did take out loans to pay for a college education that they received and benefited from. Nothing has changed within the college system. He hasn't even pushed for changes. He hasn't, he hasn't got a bill that he's asked Congress to pass. Higher education is working exactly as it did before. There's no alterations to that funding mechanism. There's no shift in the price of college or its costs or its staff or its overheads. There's no change to credentialized um, institutions. It is, it is not a reform. And because of that, it's very difficult to see as anything other than playing winners and losers for politics. And my point is that given that this is not part of some larger reform process, and given that it is not the sort of action that we would normally regard as being ameliorative, that is to say, irrespective of whether or not we like it or agree with it, an attempt to take all people who are in a particular situation, whether they're poor or starving or disabled, and give them a minimum standard of living, then it's outrageous for Biden to ask every taxpayer to pick this up. And I want to know what Republicans are going to do to make sure that the people from whom this money has been taken don't end up paying for it. Of course, they will in the short term. But once Biden's gone, what are Republicans going to do in the next budget? Are they going to tax the people who received this largesse? Are they going to give a tax break to the people who didn't? Are they going to tax or raid, frankly, the universities' endowments? Are they going to make it more difficult for philanthropists to write money off their tax bill by giving $5 billion to Harvard? I think that is an absolutely legitimate and necessary question. What are Republicans going to do to make sure that the waitress or the carpenter or the small business owner is not actually on the hook for this transfer of liability? If Biden can do this, so can the Republicans, and, and they should. Madeline, the New York Times on this maneuver noted with some palpable bitterness that Biden's, quote, piecemeal efforts have garnered him little praise. Poor fella. Uh, so this is a, that's in part because the outcomes that his rapacious constituents want is out of bounds. It's flatly illegal, and his attempts to mollify them have been essentially gimmicks. This latest one is a gimmick. It applies to roughly 150,000 borrowers who took out less than $12,000 in loans and have been paying them out for 10 years or more. It's a very narrow set of uh, uh, criteria that apply to those who would see receive this forgiveness. Nevertheless, the design here is to buy off voters. It's, it's in the email that you're going to get. Congratulations! The email that you're going to get from Joe Biden will read, all or a portion of your federal student loans have been forgiven because you qualify for early loan forgiveness under my administration's save plan. Uh, this seems like a lot of political risk to court for almost no realizable benefit. Yeah, I, I don't quite understand his calculus here, because as you say, 
those who stand to benefit are a narrow group. As Charlie pointed out as well, they're overwhelmingly middle class, obviously college educated. These people tend to vote Democrat anyway. I'm not really sure what advantage there is for Biden. Um, and, you know, as you, as you mentioned, he's, he's essentially buying votes. What other possible explanation could we have for this? But he's buying votes with the taxpayers' money. And at a time where, you know, people are very sensitive about Biden's handling of the economy. So I think that the plus, political risks are, are significant, as, as Charlie mentions. It doesn't address the, the problems, the very real problems with higher education generally. He's not going to change the way it works. He's not going to alter the funding mechanisms for, for anyone other than these debtors. Um, he's not going to reduce the cost of college. So what is the point of this other than angering people rightly um, and clearly trying to shore up his political base in an election year? Um, that, that just even that doesn't seem like it's, it's likely to work. Michael, I've said here and I've written previously that I think Donald Trump is going to have a really hard time trying to retake the presidency, regardless of what the polls say today. But I've also written that if I'm wrong, I'm wrong for wholly knowable reasons. The foremost among them being that Democrats are leaning really, really heavily into this new conceptualization of their coalition as one ballasted by degree holders. And there just aren't enough of them. Roughly 38% of Americans have college degrees or more. And as a result, the Democratic Party is hemorrhaging support across all demographics, but the common thread across them is that degree hold, people without degrees, rather, are fleeing the party's ranks. This is just terrible political math, and they seem wholly committed to it. Yeah, it, it, it speaks to a cultural bubble um, that a lot of people live in. They, they talk about politics and conceive of politics as something you know, that they do on Twitter, online, uh, with, you know, the chattering class in dialogue with media figures, et cetera, all of whom, you know, or almost all of whom have college degrees. Um, but the fact is like the democratic party relies also on, um, <laughs> you know, to, to, to coin a phrase, a multiracial working class, right? I mean, it relies on, um, black and brown and brown voters who, you know, work in all sorts of industries where they use their hands and they don't have degrees. Uh, now there are few, there are some people who need student who want student debt relief, who don't, who never achieved a degree. And, um, but in fact, that's, that's actually what makes this policy so egregious in a way is that, um, the way we treat student loans in this country and hand them out actually incentivizes the creation of an entire layer of colleges that serves working class people by preying upon them, literally like offering them, you know, offering to load them up with debt when they work in five figure service jobs. Um, the graduation rates are usually, you know, well below 30% over six years, complete completion rates. And then the people returned to the service jobs with no extra earnings that they were, you know, promised when they were told they were going to better themselves studying. But a whole college exists with six-figure salaries for administrators and mediocre professors. So, so it's like um, there's a, an element of like, um, you know, if you were a Marxist, I think you would be really vicious about the predatory nature of um the uh, Democrat educated class and its predation upon people um, and the, the way it's soaking. Them. Yeah. But if you're a practicing Marxist, you have a degree yourself. That's again, um, you know, we, we, <laughs> we need older school, uneducated Marxists uh, for this um, job. But no, I, I, you know, this is, uh, this is, a, I think you're right. And a, a mistake of innumeracy on the democratic party's part. But again, this is such a, a, um, an, a politically active and loud part of the party that has a megaphone to shout in. I mean, we've seen since 2014, Obama in, in introduced a very modest change to 529 college savings plans that would, you know, favor the upper middle class a little bit less in the way they save for their children's college tuition. 
than before. And he was like politically nuked for it. <laughs> like in a few weeks, it just disappeared. So, you know, the, the college is like a sacred element of the democratic identity and they will there. I, I think they are willing to pay a political price um, for that fact. Quick exit question for everybody. Charlie, starting with you on Wednesday, November 6, 2024, Democrats will regret these efforts to mollify uh, the avarice of the degree holders in their in their ranks. Yes or no? I don't know. It's very hard to answer that question when Donald Trump is the nominee. What I do know is that if what Joe Biden has done here becomes part of a coherent case against him that holds that while he talks a good game about being Joe from Scranton, his presidency has actually been bad for the people he says he's helping and good for those he pretends to villainize, then yes, it will. Because the people that we're talking about here, the people who are receiving these bailouts, are already doing better than everyone else. They have better health outcomes. They have better employment prospects. They make more money. They're more likely to own a home. Their divorce rate is lower. These are not the people in America who are downtrodden. The same problem obtains when it comes to the inflation that Biden made worse. Didn't cause, but made worse. The average upper middle class person who owned a house prior to Biden's presidency is doing all right. There are a lot of people who are not. And if Trump, and I don't believe this for a moment because he's so ill-disciplined, but if Trump can make that case and weave this college obsession into it, then yes, Biden will come to regret it. Madeline. Sorry, Noah, could you repeat the framing of the question? Will they regret it the day after the election that all the, uh, all the efforts to, uh, to bribe their degree holders in their ranks um, to put their, put their misgivings with Biden aside? Yes. Yeah, I think they will. But I think they have they will have much greater cause for regret in uh, proceeding with Biden as the nominee. Michael. Uh, no, I don't think they will. I think I, I mean, because I think they're I agree with you. No, I think uh, the Democrats are likely to have a better than expected election night this November. And I believe they will credit um you know, female suburbanites who want their children to go to college, who maybe have some college or completed college themselves, and for whom issues like this are just, you know, an affirmation of their identity and their importance in the political coalition. And um, so I, unfortunately, I think this uh, will work. I agree with Michael. I don't think they're going to regret it on election day. I do think they're going to regret it in the long term as they sacrifice the last remnants of the New Deal coalition. But what this demonstrates is obviously you don't want to trust your money to Joe Biden. But you know who you do want to trust your money to? Donors trust. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up a civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have charitable resources ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds and giving accounts. You can use those funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities in their local communities and think tanks, preserving civil liberties, among other things. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to donorstrust.org editors for our the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give charitably. That's donorstrust.org slash editors. So Madeline, the Alabama Supreme court ruled this week that frozen embryos should be considered children with all requisite legal protections. Specifically, this ruling covers uh, these embryos under the states that states Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act which lets parents sue for damages following the death of a child. The case was brought by uh, several couples whose embryos were destroyed after a patient removed them from a tank of liquid nitrogen and dropped them on the floor accidentally, I, I would imagine, uh, thereby creating this damage and opening up this lawsuit. The law in Alabama already protects unborn children, 
Um, and it made no, ex- no, no longer makes any exception for extra uterine children. What do you make of this decision? Yeah, so I, I think the case itself, so the, the plaintiffs uh, are very sympathetic. These are obviously um, the, the embryo's parents and they, I have no doubt, had a, a sense of, of profound and very real loss at the destruction of uh, these embryos, their children, and all the hopes and dreams that they, they hope to see fulfilled in them. Um, obviously, uh, the place that was storing the embryos had let them down in a very serious way. But the, the question that comes out here is, is sympathetic, but what is the moral status of what they've lost? Um, and I take very seriously this this claim that the extra uterine child is, is a valid concept. I mean, in a sense, we're all extra uterine children, but, um, you know, that I remember the secular atheist um, writer Christopher Hitchens saying this about the, the term unborn child and I think this is equally true of extrauterine child um, there, this is not the first time this has come up in a court uh, so a, a Virginia court last year it was actually in a, one of these divorce cases where a couple had some embryos and they were disputing custody um, this Virginia judge ruled that the embryos could constitute goods or, or chattel under a slavery era law um, and I think this is beneath the human dignity of, of the embryos. Um, and I, th- I think that the, this is more about the, the parental rights and protections that should come to people who are using IVF. Um, but it's also, it's an issue, unfortunately, that is just not going to go away. Um, th- this is an industry that unregulated is sort of the wild west of reproductive technologies, as is, as the United States ends up being for a lot of things. We've seen this with transgenderism. We see this with uh, like late-term abortions that don't happen in Europe. European countries and Australia and New Zealand, they're much more careful about how IVF is regulated, in part because they recognise that this is this should be taken seriously and we should do what we can to minimise um, the, the collateral. Uh, obviously, there's there, people have a wide range of views about IVF within uh, the, the pro-life camp. Um, and I, I think that there can be a bit of a survivorship bias with these things. You know, pe- people think, well, IVF must be a good thing because look, here are all these people who are alive today because of it. And that's true. They, they are alive today because of it and they're, they're equal in dignity and value. But then there's all these, these other embryos that, that didn't make it, that were frozen indefinitely, that were um, donated to medical science, which, which I think is very, very ethically problematic um, or destroyed and discarded. Um, as is often the case with these issues, that the the focus becomes the choice of the parents, and that's what's happened here, um, and the nature of their loss, and and the moral status of what they have lost becomes like a secondary consideration. I was actually thinking of this in relation to an abortion case that happened in Texas uh, recently. It was a it was a woman who whose husband who had been unfaithful had been poisoning her with abortion drugs um, against her will. She, this was a wanted child for her. And he um, was found out, pled guilty, uh, and pled guilty to injury of a child and assault of a pregnant woman. Now, obviously, what he did was utterly grotesque, and it's made all the more grotesque because he was he was doing it without her knowledge or her consent. Um, but at the, at the same time, it, it's particularly grotesque because he was injuring a child. Um, it, it wasn't that he was destroying her property. He, he did something that, that crossed a moral line. Um, and I, so I think these conversations are going to keep happening. Um, the, the IVF industry in the United States is, is out of control. Um, it is the Wild West. America is also a morally serious country and, and takes, takes seriously moral questions. And so I think, um, you know, I think I agree with the Alabama decision. I think extradition child is a valid concept in reference to embryos. And it will be interesting to see where this goes. So, Michael, uh, the other side of that is that this ruling had the instant effect of compelling some IVF providers, including the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System, to pause in vitro treatments instantly. So sometimes when we get, for example, abortion rulings, uh, they can prompt abortion providers to perform theatrical contortions to illustrate the injustice of this ruling or that, that don't actually comport with the corners of the particular ruling. But this isn't that. Um, IVF is an expensive process. It involves real investments from parents and grueling physical therapies. So these would be 
parents who are being treated at the University of Alabama system have to be crushed. And Democrats are obviously gleeful at the opportunity to showcase what they see as evidence of the pro-life movements, pro-life movements rather, desire to impose impediments on access to abortion at all stages of the pregnancy, including now extrauterine. Um, do Democrats benefit from this in ways that the pro-life community, even if it's a moral victory, a political victory, uh, a political setback for them in the long run? I, I have a feeling that th this has um, some benefit for Democrats politically. Um, it's hard to say how much. I mean, obviously, um, you know, these stories are heavily amplified by the news and uh, news media. Um, you know, the, the number of people who pursue IVF is it's still relatively small. I mean, it's like 1%. Um, uh, which is not statistically insignificant, but it is small. Uh, it's, and it's a growing number. Um, lots of people don't know what Maddie just said about the, the lack of regulation in this industry. I mean, the United States and Denmark are these outlier countries for um, not having stronger regulations about, you know, all sorts of things to do with IVF and consangu consanguinity and, um, you know, number of, uh, you know, number of, uh, sperm donations one, one person can make, et cetera. Um, you know, where, you know, suddenly we'll find these cases in the United States where you'll find out one sperm donor is the father of, you know, 300 or more living children. Um, uh, and so you have this, uh, bizarre risk of consanguinous, uh, unions possible between 299 uh, half siblings um, if they're living in the same region of the country. Um, so th there's, those are all these problems that are totally obscure to most Americans. Um, and But what isn't obscure is the news media saying, here are sympathetic, uh, here's a sympathetic couple, older couple who wants to conceive, who wants to form a family, uh, and they're being prevented from doing so, or they're being constrained uh, in a way that is seems morally abstemious, and we don't explain the moral thinking behind uh, the restriction. Um, so it's it it's it, it's also a sign that like a lot of religious conservatives also live um, in their own bubble and don't actually explain, <laughs> haven't actually made their thinking uh, plain and common enough to understand to the rest of the country um, when we're debating these issues. Um, so it, like I said, I think, I think it helps Democrats, but just a little, I mean, this is still a, a very minority issue. Um, and I don't, I don't think the terms are very well understood or commonly understood except by those who are in some way involved in the process, which is very few. So Charlie, um, both Madeline and Michael outlined what, is before Republicans here, which is a campaign of education, and they don't seem inclined to do that. They got very squishy real quick. Um, right away, Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway shared polling with Politico that found that 86% of the public supports IVF, including 78% of those who identify as pro-life and 83% of self-described evangelicals. Uh, House Republicans are um, running away from the ruling. Senate uh, Pennsylvania Senate candidate Dave McCormick today said, IVF is a, quote, ray of hope, and, quote, I hope I oppose any effort to restrict it, um, which is not the design of this ruling, but early indications are that that will be the practical effect of it. And yet, when Nikki Haley was confronted with the news out of, out of Alabama, she welcomed it. Um, and it would seem on its face to conflict with the careful needle threading that she was doing on the issue of abortion early in this primary race, although it's obviously not uh, the same thing, but nevertheless, it's going to require on her part some explanation. And explanation is not something that candidates like to do. It puts them on the back foot. Um, but it strikes me as confirmation of something I've thought for a while, which is that the logic of internecine competition within the GOP on the, the issue of appealing to pro-life voters will lead to politically risky stances on abortion. The logic will compel Republicans to gravitate towards something like a federal ban uh, six to 15 weeks, who knows? Because that's where the center of gravity on the Republican Party is. All right, well, let me take this in stages. I'll start with the last thing you said. 
it's entirely possible that the internecine warfare that we are seeing will lead the Republicans to take controversial positions. Perhaps this is one of them. You mentioned a federal ban on abortion, 14 to 16 weeks. The polling on that's really good for Republicans. Whether it would be after the debate had been twisted, I don't know. I, as our listeners know, don't believe that the federal government has an enumerated power that allows it to regulate abortion either way. I don't think that Congress can ban abortion, but the public doesn't seem to care about that. So I'm not entirely convinced that that position, which I think is going to be Donald Trump's position, for what it's worth, will be unpopular. On the question of this IVF ruling, I want to separate out the law from the two questions we've discussed thus far, which are political and moral. This decision was made by a court. That court was obliged to follow the statute that it was considering. That statute seems to me to mandate this ruling. It's not just the majority opinion that concludes that human embryos are included under the statute's umbrella. So did the dissent. And that's not because of Dobbs. That was the case prior to Dobbs. Now, one can argue about whether that should be the case. But if it is the case, that is to say, if the majority is right in its reasoning and the dissent is right in its concession, then Alabama must change its law before the court could come to a different decision. Whether Alabama will, I don't know. Smart politics in response to that would be to say Alabama can pass and uphold whatever laws that it wants, but whichever state the speaker is in doesn't have to, or if the person is running for president, this is not a federal matter. Dave McCormick is running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. As such, he has two responsibilities. One is to the people of Pennsylvania, not Alabama, and the other is to every American, because as a senator, he would be making federal law. I don't think that it is too difficult to square that circle as a party. If the Trump campaign says we're not in favor of changing the law around IVF federally, and the senators in states other than Alabama say we're not in favor of changing the law either at the state level or federally, then they can thread that needle. Whether they are able to do so is a separate question. I do accept that this is difficult for Republicans because this matter is reported widely in a way that is damaging for them. But I would rather, if this were the choice, I would rather deal with the political consequences of the court upholding the law than I would see our courts refuse to uphold the law out of fear that some knock-on consequence somewhere will be bad for some politicians somewhere. And those are, I'm afraid, the choices. On the moral question, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't have a view on IVF because I've never really thought about it. I intend to think about it now that this is in the news, uh, but unlike Michael and Maddie, uh, there's no religious aspect to this for me, so I would need to sit down and really think about what's involved. Well, if Democrats have their way, they're going to force it on you. Um, they clearly are inclined to make this an issue. Um, but it's tricky, as we've discussed. So exit question for everybody, starting with you, Madeline. The IVF ruling will be a major campaign theme for Democrats heading into November. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be part of their Republicans are attacking reproductive rights package. Uh, they've, they've done that already with contraception. Um, they, they will doubtless do it with this as well. Um, I still think for the reason Michael said that this is, you know, somewhat a minority issue. I, th I think abortion is the big thing that moves the needle. Um, but this doesn't this doesn't help Republicans politically. Uh, we just have to acknowledge that. Um, but it is, in my view, a, a sort of moral victory, at least for the state of Alabama. Michael. Yeah, it'll it'll be as as Maddie says, a minor it'll be incorporated into a more major theme of reproductive rights and freedoms. Um that Democrats have been very successful campaigning on in the last two cycles. And, um, you know, I think, but uh, yeah, it's just a minor part of it. Charlie. I think that 
Michael is right, it will get folded into abortion. I think it's much easier for Republicans to deal with if those Republicans don't want to make any changes in the area of IVF. The, the problem Republicans have, and I, I say problem politically, is that they do want to restrict abortion. And I think rightly so. So when the Democrats say to Republican candidates, well, you want to restrict abortion, the answer has to be, yes, I do. But in the case of, say, Donald Trump, who seems all but guaranteed now to be the Republican candidate, or of, say, a Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania, they can very clearly say, I am not interested in changing the law in this area, and we're not talking about Alabama. Whether they will be able to do that, I don't know. But this one should be much easier to dispense with, if that is indeed their view, than the abortion question, because the abortion question is something that is being fought over nationally, uh, hammer and tongs. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I can see an effort on the part of Democrats to attempt to make this part of their argument, but it is so uh, ancillary to it that railing against the social compact that prevails in Alabama will end up being more of a digression than an argument against Republican uh, the Republicans' outlook on abortion, and it will feel to Democrats like they're they're having to do the explaining with, rather than the Republicans that they would like to force on their back foot. So I don't expect it to be a major feature of their argument. Um, let's take a break real quick to hear from our second sponsor of the day, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with their new episodes of their breakout series, How the World Works, a podcast hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with a notable guest for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of whom are old friends and colleagues of National Review, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you get your podcasts or visit cei.org slash how the world works. That's cei.org slash how the world works. So I wanted to get your guys' take on a recent item via NBC News' Chuck Todd. What I thought was rather fascinating, he threw some cold water on a narrative preferred by Democrats that the GOP is wholly united by Donald Trump and has remade itself in his image. Uh, Democrats are aided in that effort by establishmentarian Republicans who have done their best to broadcast their total support for Donald Trump. But Todd observes that on both the ideological level, the big questions of conservatism, the, ro the role of government broadly, uh, the Republican Party is disunited. And tactically, uh, they are disunited as best exemplified by the paralytic GOP House majority. Quote from Todd, a basic rule of politics and sports says that the team that is more internally divided loses more than it wins. And the GOP divides are far more personal than the divides inside the Democratic tent. He cites a variety of uh, examples for this and up to and including this very bizarre situation in Michigan where the party is literally at war with itself and is set to hold two competing conventions, two competing nominating conventions, which is demonstrative of how state parties are very divided over the what has become uh, an effort to coronate Trump as the Republican Party's nominee for a third consecutive time. So this rang true to me when I read the Trump campaign's reaction to remarks that Ron DeSantis gave in a private call with supporters. In that call, he flatly rejected being Donald Trump's v VP nominee. But he also offered some very gentle criticisms of Trump's team in the effort to uh, exculpate Trump for being responsible for them. He said that he didn't blame Trump himself for the attacks on him. He, cited, he uh, attributed them to his estranged former campaign official, Susie Wiles. There's no love lost between the two of them. Uh, and he said that Trump shouldn't pick a VP based on demography, accidents of birth, the kind of signifiers that round out the ticket. It, they should pick them on, on merit alone. Gentle stuff. To this, the Trump team summoned all the maximum bombast they possibly could to condemn Ron DeSantis with the vitriol and conviction of a North Korean newsreader. Trump strategist Chris Lucivita, who's also his Trump's pick for RNC uh, chief operating officer, wrote the following. Chicken fingers and pudding cups is what you'll be remembered for, you sad little man. 
Jason Miller resurrected the epithet Rob, which is uh, supposed to be an insult to Ron DeSantis. And he promised Thor's hammer will return. I don't know what that means, but it sounds ominous. And uh, Trump advisor Stephen Chung said, quote, Ron DeSantis should have scurried off into the shadows of obscurity. Now that he's dipped his high heel toes back in the water, he might find out our shovel can dig a lot. I don't know what any of this means, but it demonstrates to me, Michael, that the thrill of the primary is going to be revived over and over and over again, especially as sledding gets tougher and tougher heading closer to November. This is this is the homecoming game here. We're going to be reliving this moment over and over again. But it's clear that Team Trump does get a charge out of this thing, and they don't really want unity if it means swallowing their pride. So is Chuck Todd right that the, the GOP is just going to be squabbling internally for the remainder of the year? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, the GOP is in, you know, a difficult transition. I mean, I was at a conference earlier this week in DC where people were still talking about, you know, realignment politics and how realignments come every 40 years or so. And if there was a Reagan realignment that kind of brought coherence to the GOP with its three-legged stool of Cold War hawkery, social conservatism, and um, economic free marketeerism, you know, that that orthodoxy and coalition kind of running out of gas after 40 years would, would make sense uh, in American political history. But what you would have expected, though, is for it, for um, the party to suffer a catastrophic, you know, electoral loss, right? Like the way Democrats experienced that in, you know, 1972 or 1984, um, which brought about, you know, reflection and reform. We haven't experienced that catastrophic electoral loss. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump's loss in 2020 was uh, very significant, but he actually left the House party in better shape than it had been in 2006 um, or 2008. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, that is one dynamic. The other is that, you know, Donald Trump splits the party in in two ways normally a candidate splits a party uh ideologically right that's normally um the the effect a divisive campaign within a party has is that it it creates ideological groups and coalitions trump does that to some degree right between more populist leaning conservatives and more establishmentarian conservatives or traditional conservatives, but Trump divides people because there are there are also a huge number of people who just object to him on the character issues and on his self presentation, on his um, crudity, and and so he 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 divides us in uh, you know uh, temperamental ways that are hard to describe. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think the Republican Party is going to remain divided until we find uh, a popular leader. I mean, there you can see, I mean, uh, just for instance, I mean, uh, you know, Charlie and I like are famous. I, you know, I went down to D.C. this week and people said, I love when Charlie and you disagree on the editors. You know, it's, it's really productive. It really helps me think through things. And I love that, too. And, and yet Charlie and I both would have been thrilled for Ron DeSantis to be the nominee of the party because we both looked to him as someone who could put together a winning, successful, and worthwhile governing coalition that can succeed in doing things both of us like. Um, and, and that's what you, you get when you get a politician who can, in his races, put together you know a 20-point win. That's not something Donald Trump can do uh, nationally, and we don't have a figure in the party that can do that nationally. Um, until then, we'll be searching for unity. So, Charlie, I guess we shouldn't ignore the countersigns, <clears throat> as we hear reports now from the Trump campaign, or at least the people speaking for the pres former president, 
that he plans to subordinate his feud with, for example, Larry Hogan, former Maryland governor, for the good of Republican chances in Maryland uh, as he's running for U.S. Senate. Do you think he can keep that up for two seconds once Hogan responds to some reporter's question about the latest Trump scandal in the negative? I certainly don't. I can be heard on the first few hundred episodes of this podcast saying, if only Trump could. And I can be heard on the 300 or so we've done subsequently saying Trump cannot. Because this isn't a matter of calculation. People who are particularly scared of Donald Trump and his potential actions often make him seem like a mastermind. Here's what they're planning. What he meant here was, look at how they're laying the groundwork. Not really. That doesn't say Trump isn't a problem or hasn't done some terrible things, but he is unbelievably capricious. He's childlike. He lashes out. So no, I don't think that he can keep it going. What I do think is that he has assembled a good team around him that may manage to sand off some of those edges or at least channel his whirlwind personality in ways that are more productive. I am as surprised by this as anyone. But I keep speaking to people who know a great deal about practical politics, the sort of area in which I have no expertise whatsoever. And they keep telling me that Trump's election team, both within the primaries and presumably soon in the general, is elite. That's going to help. It's certainly a a surprise to me because I had been informed that he would not be able to find anyone to work for him. So, yes and no, I suppose. But the candidate is the candidate, and he's always going to cost himself votes and get nothing in return. And this is, all else aside, this is the most frustrating thing about him from an electoral perspective. I'm not voting for him anyway. But from an electoral perspective, you look at the guy and you think you're not doing that and dealing with the consequences. You're doing that for no reason and you'll have to pay the consequences. And that's the odd thing about him. So yeah, he will go after a Senate candidate here or a representative there. He will lash out at people that he needs. The La Civita quote you mentioned was a good example of that. What did he get out of that? What did he get out of that with DeSantis? Almost I mean, that nothing. didn't come from Trump. That come from the came from the people around him. I know, I know. I'm saying, so. I'm saying he he will do that. They will do that. But but he's, I don't know. He's incapable of it, and it, it it's really going to come down to whether or not the country is so annoyed with Joe Biden or worried about Joe Biden's age that it says it doesn't mind. So, Madeline, this might come as a shock to everyone, but right now, as we speak. CPAC is happening. (laughs) To call it a low-key affair is an understatement. There's very little attention being paid to this year's events, and the pictures that I've seen from the floor uh, make make it appear rather abandoned. I don't know if that's an angling issue or whether that's a real uh, assessment from the people who are there, but it does seem like this is less of an affair than it had been in previous years, and why wouldn't it be? There's no room on the agenda for the also-ran presidential aspirants who would typically expose themselves to a CPAC audience, no ideological debates over the future direction of the conservative movement or the country it hopes to lead. It's become an exercise in Trump cheerleading, with a lot of hostility directed toward the holdouts, foremost among them being Nikki Haley, and a ton of praise for people who are not at all conservative. Folks like former Democratic Rep uh, Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii, and El Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele, who, uh, along with his allies, summarily reinterpreted the Constitution to stay in power. Already, you can see the appeal. Uh, As entertainment, it makes sense that CPAC would be sleepy, because there's no friction, there's no desire for tension. It's a display of false unity, and a shallow one at that, insofar as there are very few participants in the exercise. There's always a risk of overanalyzing this thing, but let's risk it. 
What does this tell you about the conservative movement and the Republican Party? Well, it's it's sort of a microcosm of the divisions and dysfunction you were just talking about. I mean, you're right. CPAC used to be a forum for a wide range of conservatives to debate and hash out their differences. And they were united by the idea that they had a common enemy. And, you know, very much like the, the modern Democratic Party, I think, as much as they had their ideological divisions, they're able to say things like, we're on the same team. I mean, AOC said that after the special elections in New York. So I know I have my differences with Tom Susie, but I, I, you know, I, we're on the same team. That just is not where the GOP is. It, so naturally, CBAC shrunk. Um, it's very MAGA. Um, the outsized media interest is sort of dwindled some, somewhat. Um, it's, uh, you know, you had Matt Schlapp, the, the chairman of the American Conservative Union, begin with this completely absurd uh, overstatement that that Trump is this unique American who's being persecuted, who's being tortured, uh, who's a victim of the democratic policies based on the world's worst dictators, whether it be Putin, whether it be Xi. And when you consider like recent news about Navalny or, you know, what, what's happening with the Uyghurs, this is just like, I mean, I'm, I, I'm quick to, to point out that a lot of uh, the, the attacks of Trump have, have been misuse or abuse of, of power, and they're certainly partisan. But this is, come on, he's not being tortured. It's a ridiculous overstatement. Um, and as you say, you know, there's there's a there's a temptation from the outside to kind of think of this as being irrelevant. I, I got a kick out the fact that they had uh, Liz Truss there, the um, former Prime Minister of uh, Britain, if, if you can remember. She was very short-lived or short-lived, as Jane Ordling would say. And she has this like reputation for political shape shifting and opportunism, so it's kind of hilarious to, to and see. And she was doing her best Trump impression. Of, she was about her her own experience being ejected from Tory leadership. Yes, no, exactly. She had she had her own persecution narrative. I mean, a big part of that is that she's trying to sell her book. She's got a book coming out. I mean, why why not try sell over over the Atlantic? Um, but yeah, it's it, it's you know it's very tempting from the outside to say, oh, this, this is irrelevant. What a maga circus! What a carnival! But the, the danger with that is, depressingly, this is not so much irrelevant as representative. This is the future of the Republican Party. This is its dominant forces, and you can tell who is winning just by who is absent from the stage. Can I can I can I, yeah. can I just jump in real quick? I I have a slightly different take on CPAC. I don't th- you know. I think the both the combination of the outlandishness and then the, what you observe now in some of the photographic evidence, which is um, a marked drop in attendance and interest. Um, you know, this reminds me a lot of the Tea Party. Um, groups that grew up about a decade ago, some of them as, you know, almost an alternative to, to what was then CPAC. And they would, they would flourish for one or two years. You know, they'd hold a giant conference in, you know, say Nashville and get Sarah Palin to talk. They would overcharge all the attendees and then none of them would come back for the second year because they'd either lost interest or they'd felt fleeced, um, you know, or they, they themselves thought that they're, you know, this is kind of like a lot of show without substance. So, you know, I, I wonder if it's just, if, if we're watching this as like a flame out rather than a, an enduring, um, you know, block of the party that's going to be immovable in the future. Just throwing it out there. I'm laying my marker down. Yeah. It's, it's worthwhile. Um, we're running a little long, but I want to get a quick exit question in here because we're talking about you know disunity in the party. We can't not talk about Nikki Haley, who's the foremost expression of it, although right now no evidence that she's at all a threat to Donald Trump's ascension to lead the Republican Party. But if Donald Trump is an incumbent, he's a weak one. His showing in Iowa and New Hampshire demonstrates it. And we have another primary this weekend. Haley's expected to lose it. But her polling has been improving relative to Donald John Trump's in South Carolina, where he kind of plateaued. And if you look at the real clear politics average, 
Nikki Haley's climbing quite a bit. The momentum is on her side, and Donald Trump's is kind of declining slightly. Nevertheless, it's still a 60-30 proposition, roughly. Um, Where do you guys think she ends up on Saturday? You don't have to give me a number if you don't want to, but will it approach a threshold at which point there would be a shakeup in the media narrative, which is that this thing's been over for a while? Um, Michael? Um, I think she'll be at... um I think she'll actually get over 30. Um, I think Donald Trump's forces. That would be, be roughly where she's pulling right now around 35. Yeah. I think she'll, she'll be a little over 30. And I think it's, it's partly because um, her support is very passionate. Donald Trump's support is very secure in the idea that he's the presumptive nominee. Um, so her supporters have all the reason to turn out in force. Um, and I actually think it will it will slightly change the the narration, which is it's been that oh it's Donald Trump's party it's Donald Trump's party. I, I think what we're going to come to is the the truth that's been lurking I think in all the polls going back two years, which is it's Donald Trump's party but it's weak it's a it's a weak party, and he is weakly holding it together. That it, that is he does have a, a very firm committed base, but. It's he doesn't dominate the party the way some previous nominees did. Charlie, where does Nikki Haley end up on Saturday night? <laughs> if she doesn't get much over thirty percent, it's catastrophic for her. It's her own state. And I think she'll have to drop out. Uh, I, I think she's going to get maybe 35%, and I think it's going to be catastrophic, and I think she's going to have to drop out. Fair enough. Madeline? Uh, s- sadly, I, I agree with Charlie. I'm going to put myself out on the limb here a little bit, and I think she approaches 40%. Maybe not not quite cresting it, but approaching it 37, 38 in ways that outperform her polling. The momentum is on her side. It's a weird Saturday contest. It's an open primary uh, there's much more interest in her campaign given the state of Donald Trump's inevitable ascension to uh, you know, lead the party. So I think she gets close to 40%. I don't think she crests it. But there will be a bit of a story over the weekend about how, oh, this is kind of a shakeup, and then by Monday we forget about it. Um, so we'll see. Uh, let's take a minute to do a quick plug for NR+. It is your way around our metered paywall. You know what you're doing? You're opening incognito windows. You're stealing your mom's password. It's unnecessary. It's a lot of work. You don't have to do it. If you just pay a small amount, you'll get access to the whole suite of National Review offerings from the magazine to the lively debate that occurs on the corner to our articles and our editorials. It's an important way to support our journalism and National Review's mission. And also, please consider giving us a glowing review on iTunes. It's good for us. It's good for the show. It helps everybody else find this show. If you like it, share uh let's move on to some lighter business charlie you have been watching the acclaimed actor stanley tucci not acting not acting eating drinking walking around (laughs) in italy against beautiful backdrops with beautiful food beautiful people who speak that beautiful language it is a beautiful show i think it aired on cnn a while back i am enjoying it enormously it's called Searching for Italy with Stanley Tucci. Um, I don't know where you can find it, to be honest with you, because I was sent it on a DVD by my parents from England, having uh, booked a trip to Italy, which we took last May. But if you can find it, do find it. Where is it, Michael? Max and and Hulu, I think. Max and Hulu. There you go. Yeah, CNN's program. Yeah, I have the DVDs. Cool. Madeline, you are reading a novel by an author I will decline to pronounce. It's called The Painted Veil. I can pronounce yeah. that part. Yes. Uh, it's, I think it's by W. Somerset Mom, but it maybe is. it's Morgan. Um <laughs> So uh, it's a great, great novel. I, I just finished it. Um, and it's a sad story of a marriage in trouble. It's set in the 1920s. It's a British couple who go to China um, a fictional uh, colony in China, and uh, the wife's unfaithful, and then uh, the the husband drags them both into the middle of a cholera epidemic. Um, 
And the I, w- I won't ruin it because maybe our listeners might want to read it, but uh, it has a very different ending in the novel than it does in the movie. And it's so that it's actually been made into like three movies, but the most recent one came out in 2006 has Naomi Watts, Edward Norton. Um, and I actually, this is a rare occasion where I, I prefer, I think I prefer the movie. Now, the novel's still great, but I think I prefer the movie because it's less depressing. So anyway... There's some recommendations if people want to go read a depressing novel or watch a slightly less <laughs> depressing movie. Sounds fun in a, in a <laughs> sort of way. Uh, Michael, you got the kids around you. Yeah, the, um, they, they've been on winter break this week while uh, we've been working from home. And um, it's just been a joy to give them a break from school um, and kind of let them in, um, indulge. I think there's kind of a a pressure, especially in New York, uh, that all kids are like organization kids now and, you know, constantly doing activities or enriching uh, things. And it's actually been fun to, to give them almost like a traditional summer break uh, in the middle of winter where they just just play around the house and, and uh, entertain themselves and um, share with us the little funny jokes and memes they get from classmates. I want to take this opportunity to shamelessly plug a new show that I'm doing. It's called Issues with Noah Rothman. Uh, last week, I was uh, blessed to have my colleagues, Michael and uh, Dominic Pino, join me for a debate on the controversy around providing arms and support to Ukraine. This week, I had the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Jonathan Shanzer, and Mediaites Isaac Shore, a National Review alum, on to debate the Israel-Hamas war and what the real threat is to Joe Biden's bottom line in November from the rabble of anti-Israel activists. If you too want to have issues with Noah Rothman, you can find it on YouTuber X at Two Way TV app. That's the number two way TV app, A-P-P. Guys, let's do some editor's picks real quick before we get out of here. Madeline, what's your pick? Um, I just encourage people to follow the work of Caroline Downey. I think she's a real asset to National Review in, in multiple ways. She's a great reporter, but she's also um, a great broadcaster. And uh, she works very hard, and I think she deserves a lot of credit for it. 100% agree. You should catch her videos and her um, her podcasts, as well as her writing. I concur. Michael? Um, my name is a kind of double pick. Um Armand White, and it's it's two pieces written in the past couple of weeks. The first was The Curse of the Princess Bride, and the second was Can Conservative Filmgoers Win the Culture War? The first was his takedown of The Princess Bride, one of the most beloved films. Um, and, uh, you know, totally Armand, totally Armand's, <laughs> Armand's slaying of sacred cows is just the bravest and most, um, you know, heedless I've ever seen. And I love it. I love that he cultivates a totally distinctive critical voice and, and taste. I think, um, he's, he's pursuing criticism in a a very serious way, um, that pulls against the poptimism of the rest of the culture. And, um, he always gives me something, to think about, especially when he is most disagreeable. I love him. Charlie, what's your pick? Well, I, as you know, a big Jim Garrity fan, and he has a post this morning. Why does the president need note cards to talk to donors? Now, this is an excellent post, but I must quibble with the opening which is, no, it's not the biggest deal in the world to hear that President Biden now uses note cards when giving remarks and answering questions at his closed-door high-dollar campaign fundraisers. I actually think it is. (laughs) I think it is the biggest deal. Or at least it is a big deal. I don't know why people keep saying, but her emails. Oh, but his age. If he cannot function without note cards, then he can't be president. Anyway, Jim and I seem to agree on the rest of it because he goes through and explains exactly why it is, in fact, a big deal, which it is. And the best part about this post is it gives all sorts of examples. I have a sort of general impression of Biden as being out of it and unable to answer questions and giving 
wrong answers and telling lies and mixing people up. But Jim has some choice examples of this in this post that you should read and then conclude that I'm right. And in fact, it is the biggest deal. Uh, I'm going to cite Jeff uh, Blair's Yale University decides it needs better students again. Yale is joining in a movement to reinstate standardized testing as a requirement for uh, evaluation and admission. Uh, and they note that the uh, the effort to do away with standardized testing actually disadvantaged minority applicants in poorer schools, which is exactly what the objection was in the first place from the supposed troglodytic right-wing uh, racists. Jeff writes, no, it's because a test-free policy simply made the resulting class not only dumber, but whiter as well. Yale is returning to testing requirements not only in the hopes of humanitizing the meritocracy so much as making sure it still remains properly racially calibrated. Indeed. That's going to do it for us. You have been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of the show without express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertisers, Donors Trust, and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.